yeah, sometimes I'd be like, do you want to take a picture? Knowing that someone might look at me straight in the eye and this has happened and said, no. (laughs) 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 I just wanted directions to the UPS. (laughs) Totally. Welcome back to Dear Shandy, listeners. Hello, Andy. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing great. Are you excited? I, I am. I was just about to say I was excited <laughs> until you interrupted me. But yes, I am excited about our guest. Yeah, doubly excited over here because we have a very exciting guest. I will begin rattling off his many accomplishments. So... <laughs> Our guest today is an accomplished actor, writer, YouTuber, and the host of The Curious Podcast. He's been in the public eye since adolescence, first rising to fame on the hit series Drake and Josh. He has appeared in countless films and TV shows, and he currently stars in the new sitcom How I Met Your Father. His gorgeous memoir, Happy People Are Annoying, (laughs) the dichotomy of saying gorgeous and yeah, anyway, was just released uh, two days ago on March 15th. And we're talking today about relationships with the public, so parasocial relationships and also relationships with ourselves. And given parasocial relationships, I'm just going to refresh us all on the definition are defined as one-sided relationships where one person extends emotional energy, interest, and time, and the other party, the persona, is completely unaware of the other's existence. I don't think there's a more qualified brain to pick Mm -hmm. on this subject than that belonging to today's esteemed guest, Josh Peck. Thank you so much for joining us. Wow. What an intro. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I am humbled. I'm flattered. I'm slightly uncomfortable, but mostly I'm ready. (laughs) When are you not uncomfortable? Come on. I read your book. (laughs) You bring up a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we both read your book and we feel that you, you know, you're clearly an analytical, reflective and neurotic person. And I think you're going to be right at home here at Dear Shandy. Yes. I can already feel that. I actually, I, when I read your book, which is excellent, by the way, mm. and that goes without saying, this is not a, a promo or anything. No. This is a good book. Yeah, I, It's one of those books I was annoyed that you can write that book. I can't do that. I want to write that book. And you did it. And I was actually annoyed by how good it was. Mm-hmm. That was my <laughs> takeaway from your book. That's a compliment, believe yeah. it or not. No, that is truly high praise. And I appreciate it because you're right. Like when I find that I'm thoroughly pissed at someone because they're doing something that I'm like, I want to do that. Like I, 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 I have that feeling a lot. And so I'm honored that, that perhaps you have a little annoyance with me. Um, and thanks for thank you guys pleasure. for reading the book. Oh, it was a very it was a, pleasure. It was a truly a pleasure to read. It was hilarious, but mm. also really poignant and at times heartbreaking. It was one of those rare books that actually genuinely hits all the human emotions. Yes. Yeah, it because, really does. Because sometimes when it's just heartbreaking, you're like, oh, I can only yeah. last two chapters. Yeah, it was really beautiful. And we're I swear we don't just no, blow smoke. No, we don't do the book thing on the podcast. We're not that's not what we do. This is actually the first time we're gushing because it is a great book and 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 everything we sell on this podcast, we stand by. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling all of the people who are watching or listening today, get this book and it's on me. <laughs> it's on me if you don't like it. Great. Oh. I appreciate it. I You know, when I was writing it, I think just because, and as you know, from reading it, like my thing is my default is comedy and making light Mm -hmm. of situations. It's been a great tool that was sort of acquired out of some, some challenges as a, as a young, a young human. And so luckily I I had a great book advisor, my friend, Ryan Holiday, who's no slouch, like he's a pretty accomplished writer. And, and he said, you know, you, you might accomplish writing the funniest book ever. Don't worry, you won't. But let's just say you do. (laughs) He's like, even if it's hilarious, if you don't get honest and really tell people what it felt like to be in your skin at that time, no one's going to care. So I think that was sort of like the thing that I had to overcome with this book is being willing to be vulnerable and honest about the things that I was was dealing with. And the things that you normally uh, poke fun at more than anything. Totally. 
That guy sounds like an apostle right there. See, I read the book. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> okay. So we're going to sort of go back and forth between talking about parasocial relationships and your relationship with yourself, which I actually think are sort of common themes throughout the book. So just right off the bat, you have over three and a half million YouTube subscribers, over seven million followers on TikTok. A whopping 12.6 million Instagram Damn. followers. It's dizzying reading these like numbers. This is bigger than some European countries already. <laughs> Several, I think. And you have been on TV since you were 10. Do you feel like you can even process the idea of so many people knowing who you are and caring about you? Like, what does that look like on a psychological level? Does it feel good or does it almost seem like you, it cannot compute? It's a great question. I, you know what? In a weird way, when you when you attain some fame and notoriety, and I say this in the book, like the world becomes a small town, and mm -hmm. where you would get the privilege of your small town, and we all have our version of it, where people know your name, they're friendly, they give you a free cup of coffee, like people are just a little bit more accommodating because they know you're a local and they know you're solid, mm -hmm. and when you're a public person, people want to do that for you a lot, like randomly or. Just, you know, it's, I go to this burger place near my son's school to pick him up because I've learned quickly what the carpool fiascos look like when going to pick up your child. <laughs> and it's it's scary. And and soccer moms don't mess around. But so I'll go to this burger place a couple of days out of the week because I get there a little early and I'll usually like grab a drink or something. And most times the person who works there won't let me pay for my drink. <laughs> and it's like a dollar seventy five. Like it's my first of all, it's my pleasure. I'm also like, if anybody can buy a drink, I, I can afford a drink. <laughs> like, but for her, she's like, no, no, like you're cool. I know you. Like enjoy a free cup of lemonade. And I'm like, this is so weird and yeah. great, and I appreciate it. But also, I, I have to be reminded, like this is not normal. But no. in your case, is it kind of given? you pretty much grew up in the public eye. Like is like, what do you even have as a point of reference? Like mm -hmm. for normalcy? True. Just what people tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I listened to Mayim Bialik um, interviewed on this podcast. If you, I forget, I, I forget the name of the pod, but I, I've always been a fan of hers and, and she just has a really cool story. And he asked her what, how she's had such staying power from blossom to now, Jeopardy. I mean, she's, she's a badass. And she's like, you know, I seem to have a, a ability or you could call it talent for this thing of playing pretend and putting on makeup and costume and playing pretend professionally. All the byproducts that come from that, the red carpets, the press, the photographs, she's like, I have very little interest in. Mm -hmm. So I really subscribe to that. I, I, I feel that way completely. And in a weird way, and I'm, you know, I, I talk a lot about it in the book, growing up so overweight in the public eye, while incredibly painful and challenging in some ways, the silver lining to that was it was like the governor. And it never allowed me to become too impressed with myself because mm. I was so insecure. So yeah. was there ever a period when you were a, a teenager where there was like a honeymoon period where like, oh my God, I'm famous. This is amazing. And how long did that last? Yeah. There, had to have, there had to have been some amount of time. If it did happen, it wasn't, um, it wasn't when I was a teenager, I would say. I think so. It, it, when I got popular on social media and suddenly you saw like, and this is so gross, but if I'm going to get honest, it's with you guys. Like you could like text or you could DM a, a cool apparel company you like and just say, <laughs> I'm a big fan. And they'd be like, where should we send you a box full of free crap? I mean, why like, else would you be famous? Uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. Like, of course, like, and, and I, you know, this is ridiculous too, but like, I'm like the only times that I'm really excited to have any sort of, or use any sort of fame is if I do like a college kick and I fly into a city and I'm in like Albany and I get in on the red eye and it's 11 and check-ins not till two. And I just go into the Marriott and I look at the front desk person and I 
clock that they might know me, I think in my head, I'm getting a room early. (laughs) (laughs) That to me is like, oh my God, now this is celebrity. (laughs) So I guess by now you can recognize the look of recognition. Yes. And is it, what is it? It's like a flicker. Would you say? It has three stages. It's either super subtle, it's aggressive and Mm. uncontrolled, or it's very poorly acted. Like it's (laughs) someone who's doing their best to cover it. (laughs) That's so accurate. (laughs) It's true. Those are the three. (laughs) It really is. To me, I I dislike the third. The third is not the best. Mm. I mean, does it bother you at all? Or do you just think they're all cute? I think it's like, sometimes I will say if someone's just being like super uncomfortable about it, I'll, I'll make, I'll just go over and say hi, or I'll <laughs> wave or just be like, let me break this tension. Cause I'm now feeling a little uncomfortable <laughs> and, and you know, if, if it's the right situation, which is nine times out of 10, I'm like, you know, nice to meet you. And I hate to, <laughs> this sounds so corny, but like, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I feel like I, I remember um, I was lucky enough to go to RIP Bob Saget's wedding. And mm. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, but you know, he was best friends with John Mayer and John performed two songs for him and his wife at his wedding. And it was really beautiful at the reception and John sort of in his little speech, you know, honoring the couple had said, you know, when I get invited to a wedding by a close friend, I offer up a song because I assume that it's easier for them to say no than to ask me if they really want it. Oh, wow. So I just kind of say, if you'd like, I'd be happy to, to do a song. So, you know, God bless John Mayer. But yeah, sometimes I'll be like, do you want to take a picture? Knowing that someone might look at me straight in the eye and this has happened and said, no. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to directions to the UPS. <laughs> totally. Totally. Oh, that's pretty great. That's great. Okay. Do you want to ask this question that we thought of the other day? The more digestible way of thinking about it? Oh, yeah. I was asking Charlene this question just because of our podcast. What no, no, was- and by the way, we want to first get out of the way. It's like such a microcosm. Like you're just like... it. Our, it's, I just want to get that out of yes, we're yes. not, a, we, we're we not can, speaking like we can clear like the air that Josh level. Beck is more famous than <laughs> like, us. Just in case anyone was worried, he's more famous than us. Okay, we're, got, we're I, good. <laughs> yeah, I mainly, I don't want to sound like I think that we're on the same level. No, but but just, yeah. it's all it's all a spectrum. Yeah, we're on the spectrum. Sure. We're together in this. We're good company. Yeah. We're in good company. So I was saying, you know, sometimes when we're recording and, you know, we know like, you know, whatever, 50,000, 60,000 people are probably going to be watching or listening. It's it's in it's not we're not able to process that, obviously, but we were I was asking Charlene, like, would you be more comfortable doing the podcast, imagining a stadium of 60,000 people watching or would you be more comfortable doing it, knowing it was like individual silos 60,000 times around the world? And that's my question to you. Like, what what is what gives you that energy? Like, would you. Is it scarier to think of like doing it for a stadium or for like individuals, individuals everywhere? Certainly scarier for doing it at a stadium. But I, I think live podcasts are almost never great. Um, <laughs> when <they're>, yes, <laughs> I agree. It's honest. <laughs> be, because it's not the medium. Like we were, you know, I, I've, I've been, um, it's sort of a controversial, controversial opinion, but I've been doing this new show, How I Met Your Father, and due to COVID and whatnot, there's not an audience. And Mm -hmm. so, but it is a sitcom that would traditionally be in front of an audience. And everyone knowing that I came from Drake and Josh and kind of like old school shticky sitcoms, they were like, oh, you must miss the audience. And I go, no, not at all. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. because I've always been of the mind that while an audience is great and their energy is beautiful and so fun to entertain, we're making a TV show. Like the show is actually for people at home. Right. A podcast is actually right. for people in their car or on a walk. Mm-hmm. So I am, there's no worse feeling than 
being on your third, fourth, or fifth take of a, of shooting a sitcom in front of an audience and feeling them getting tired of your your mm, crap and yeah. then giving you pity laughs and you're like, oh <laughs> god! But you're like, no, no, this is I. We have to make sure this is perfect because while this is for you, it's kind of actually not for you, mm. right? Like. So, yeah, that's how I, I think about it. Uh, well, I agree. I mean, I personally would much rather the individual silos, at least v- visually, to think about it that way. Because otherwise, I definitely with me, I mean, I have a, a serious problem. I have a lot of shame. So I don't like <laughs> performing or being the center of attention. But the when there is a lot of people like and I or at least visualize a lot of people or I'm in front of a lot of people, I feel like I'm performing for them as opposed to performing what needs to be done, Actually which is just me, it's just yeah. the real thing. And yes. I don't know about you, you're probably a more natural performer than me, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your work, <laughs> I've seen your films, but um, I, I find it to, to get the real element of the individual who is the performer, the podcaster, it's better for them to not be performing for a mass, mm. at least in their mm. mind. Yeah. Do you find, Matt, can I ask you guys something? Yep. Yeah. You guys find like the episodes that you've done that are your real favorites or standouts is when you sort of completely lost perspective of of an audience listening and it became a true yes. conversation mm-hmm. yes. in yes. private. Always. Yeah. Always. Same with you. Oh, yeah. Like my acting teacher is always she's so big on like privacy, which is so hard because mm-hmm. it's like everything in your body wants to shift to a, a bunch of people watching you. But right when people really get honest in front of you and like, you feel like you're a voyeur of their like intimate private moment, you're, it's very compelling. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, in some ways, I feel like that's been the story of our podcast. Our podcast is young. It's an, it's a year and a half old, but people really liked like our dynamic and it was kind of like, what are you talking about? This is just the way we interact. Like how I, I, it's like, I can't even compute. That would be something people would be interested in, but you're right. It's like, you're a fly in the wall of, other people's intimate. Well, they they love moment. honesty. Just yeah. Whether it's intimate honesty or just honesty, and like your book, it's just Which pure is, honesty, page to page to page. That's what people want always. Okay, there's something heartwarming about that, but that actually brings me to my next question. Something that I struggle to find heartwarming, but maybe you will put a positive spin on this. Uh, as you described in the book, you lost 120 pounds over the final two seasons of Drake and Josh, correct? Yes. And you That's actually- me, by the way. You lost me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. We should. When we I should wake do up. The, the follow up app is where you just, I give you a piggyback ride for a day to remember what it was like. <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm game <laughs> so you said in the book that you actually received a lot of backlash and you said people tend to marry themselves to the first image they have of you people have an idealized picture of you they want you to be the thing you were before they got to know you i had taken it from them someone they loved and they didn't like it so you would think that people feeling like they know you would embrace change and, in fact, maybe champion it, especially when it's for your betterment. Uh, why do you think people are so attached to that initial impression? Well, it's such a great question. I think, you know, there, there's this weird chemistry that happens. It's almost like attraction um, in meeting like a partner, right? And it's mm. this perfect meeting of environment and whatever's going on in your life. And like, I remember the first time I, you know, when you, it's even, you could liken it to when you fall in love with a show and you realize I'm going to binge this now for the next five seasons. Like <laughs> I, I, I can't, how lucky am I? Like, this is going to bring me so much joy. I know and where you're half, going with this. <laughs> and if halfway through, you know, succession, it turned into two and a half men, You'd be like, that's a great show too, but it's not the one I signed up for. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a that's an amazing juxtaposition, by the yes. way. Yes. So I think it's it's yeah, it's a really hard and even the best case scenario, like, you know, Steve Carell is one of our greatest actors, but to so many people who'll be Michael Scott forever because mm. of how beloved the offices are. Even I listened to because you know, for better or for worse, and mostly for better, I'll you know, Drake and Josh, my name will be synonymous as this duo thing that I did when I was a teenager. I, I listened to Ben Affleck on Howard Stern and he talked about just how much people always want the duo of Ben and Matt, even now. Mm. And I'm like, what I would do to be Ben and Matt. But for him, <laughs> it's annoying because he is it. 
you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I get it. Yeah. It's so, is there a way to put a positive spin on that? Cause I, I can't help but find it a little off putting, mm -hmm. like, like you're a human, mm -hmm. like you claim to, to love, I don't know, maybe this is just me being like pessimistic, but you know, they, if they care about you, then you would think that they would embrace it. Yeah. It's, and, and I don't mean to, to make it sound like that was the majority. I, I wouldn't say that was, I think mostly people felt like the only thing had changed that changed was my physicality. Mm. And many people mm. were, were very happy for me. And, okay. but yeah, I think there's also power in sticking around, you know, Chris Rock has this great quote of like, I don't care whether you're good or bad. I care how long you've been in the game. And if mm. you're there for 10 years, I respect you 20 years. I appreciate you. And 30 years, I love you. Like, <laughs> And so I, I can see now at 35, almost, you know, 20 plus years doing it, like there's a lot less of that you were funnier when you were fat because mm. people either accept me as I am now and are like, wow, he's stuck around. Like he hasn't com become a complete cliche yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And assu we assume that the people who watched your show have grown up now and they're adults. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. A little more accepting. We are on the road again, Andy. And that means... <laughs> it means... That I'm cooking. It means you're cooking. We, of course, are talking about HelloFresh in case you have been living under a rock. And I don't even mean with this podcast, but in America. Mm -hmm. uh, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, meaning they deliver fresh ingredients to your door and they give you recipes and you basically have everything you need to whip up a healthy and delicious meal. In not too much time. And if you're on the road. As we are. Change your address in your account settings. Yep. This was a pretty cool realization for me, actually. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, normally in the past when I've done opera gigs, I've been by myself. But having you with me, it really is worthwhile. You save so much money. Like you can try new restaurants, but also are you going to eat out every single meal three times a day? No. So it's just great to have that option to do a home cooked meal on the road without having to buy every single spice and ingredient. It hits all the points that anyone cooking food on earth yes. would want. Mm -hmm. Healthy, mm -hmm. convenient, yes. affordable, yes, and fun. <laughs> I have a low bar for fun. <laughs> so go to HelloFresh.com slash Shandy16 and use that code Shandy16, that's one six, to get up to 16 free meals plus three free gifts. So go to HelloFresh.com slash Shandy16 and use code Shandy16 to get up to 16 free <laughs> meals and three free gifts. Okay, so a theme... In what I felt was like the first half of the memoir revolves around you feeling haunted by feeling unworthy. Mm. And you met your wife, Paige, at around 24, correct? Yes. Okay. Do you think you attracted her because you had worked on feeling unworthy? Or do you think she's the reason or a reason for your overcoming that? As in what came first? There's a line in the book where I talk about meeting Paige and, and marrying her. And, it, and it's sort of in the final chapter where I say, I had found the perfect person for me. Surely the argument could be made that everyone deserves love, but not everyone is capable of, tr of attracting the kind of love that they want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was not, you know, I could never have attracted someone like Paige who, you know, is, is a normal person with her own challenges, but like comes from an incredibly healthy and just a beautiful, this beautiful family. It's not fair. They're all gorgeous and nice. It sucks. <laughs> it, 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 it makes no sense. Um, but she doesn't have the same trauma as I do. And, and I think had I not worked on that, I think she just would have been averse to, to giving me a shot. And so, yeah, I would say, a lot of work had to be done on my own. And then a lot of work had to be done together. You know, I, I, I heard a friend of mine in sobriety say this once, like, once you get a year of sobriety under your belt, he's like, get out there and start living. Like, have relationships, have experience, go for your goals. He's like, because if you're not, if you're not careful, you'll become this Fabergé egg. 
mm. like this beautifully mm. crafted thing that the moment it hits a little turbulence will mm-hmm. shatter. Mm-hmm. So, so I think I had to do a, a considerable amount of work and then being with the right person forced me to do a lot more work. Okay. That's a good, so a bit of both, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that there's always, so we're a relationship podcast and 50% of this podcast is people writing in with their relationship questions and we answer them from the perspective of a happily married couple. But it really is a theme is that idea that do I need to overcome X, Y, Z? Like, am I not even a candidate for a healthy relationship until this or pretty much the chicken or the egg? So I was just curious your take on that. But it's like anything, right? Like you have to you need to prepare, you need to do the simulation, but until you get on the battlefield, like you can't prepare for everything. And, and it will, it, it, you, it hardens you in the best way. That sounds negative, but it hardens you (laughs) in the best way. And also my biggest advice to anyone looking to be in a relationship is I say, when you get in a fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend, do you call a single friend or a married friend? Because if you call a single friend, you're asking for trouble. (laughs) Good advice. Yeah. It's also good for us. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you say in the book, quote, fame or public notoriety, the feeling of having the world become one small town. This is what you said earlier, because everyone knows your name also meant that everyone felt comfortable commenting on anything they deemed unsatisfactory about you. The world becomes that family member who gets drunk at Thanksgiving and tells you what they really think. I like this one. Unquote. (laughs) So my, my question is your entire career dating all the way back to childhood as an actor and comedian, has meant requiring some degree of approval from others, often strangers, to succeed. You're obviously a success story in that regard, but I'm wondering if you've ever just hated it, hated that dynamic. So hating needing approval? Pretty much. I mean, you are, it's a symbiotic relationship, you with requiring Mm. the approval of others. It's not it's not just a meritocracy. Obviously, you have to be good for people to like you and for you to succeed. But at the same time, it's also, in your case, being liked, being approved, getting the gig. So I'm yes. just curious if you've ever just wanted to throw in the towel with needing that. Well, there's certainly, there are some, it's less so now, but there are certainly some people who have become good and famous and been totally disagreeable folk. I mean, you know, we're living through like the the golden age of Kanye right now, <laughs> who are like certain people whose talent is so undeniable that they're allowed to be, um, they don't have to be as political or as, as uh, They can proper. be terrible. They can be terrible <laughs> yeah. is what you're trying to say. It's okay. I'll say He's it for you. He's being delicate. Yeah, yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for saying that. You got it. You got it. Anytime. No, I, and I'm, I'm like, dude, I'm like the biggest Kanye, like, especially early Kanye stand there is. And sometimes I want to be like, dude, what are you doing here? What, what's yeah, going yeah, on? You're yeah. killing me. Mm. Like, I want to love mm. you. Um, yeah. So, That's all we want. We All we want to do is love Kanye. <laughs> he won't let us do it. But what uh, my question to you would be, is there any job where you don't need, like, if you're a dentist, you're going to, you know, you need your clients to like you or they're going to find someone else to clean their teeth. Or sure. even yeah. even if you're a janitor, right, like you're, or you work at a food truck, like you have someone you answer to. Mm-hmm. So in, in theory, you have to be likable to at least one person probably. Ooh, that's a good answer. Likeability is valuable. Yeah, it's just, it's something that, I've always sort of struggled with. So my day job is I'm an opera singer and there's just days where you're like, I want to, I want to believe in a meritocracy where it doesn't matter who, you know, it doesn't matter what agency you're with or whatever, or, you know, you're, it's like you earned it because of the five minutes or 10 minutes in that audition room. But it's Mm. really not as simple as that. And I don't need to tell you that, you know, better than anyone. And so there's just that element of constantly seeking approval that, sometimes feels sort of arbitrary whether or not it comes your way. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious. You, you have a, a very positive outlook. This is so far a very heartwarming conversation for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, know what you, I, I know what you mean. It's a, it can be a challenging thing. I, I think if the less heartwarming side or the, the, the seeking approval and can be damaging for kids is that movie and TV sets are this very specific thing 
where so much money is at play all the time that there's really, if you're an actor, there's, there's not a day off. Like you can't really call in sick. Mm. And so, especially as a kid, this idea that like, you can't have a bad day. Um, I think played, uh, played havoc with me, like certainly, mm-hmm. you know, got me to this place. And it was something I had to contend with. And my wife's been a great help in this where she's like, stop with this shtick, stop with this persona you put on this people pleasing my acting teacher too. She's like, you have a lot of forward energy. I feel like you're always trying to like, please me. And I'm like, yes, because throughout my childhood, all I was ever, all I ever heard was the dumb, don't ever work with kids and dogs. And like, I wanted to, I wanted to be like Mr. Entertainer, like want it louder, boss. Like I got another take of me, boss. And it was like, it it wreaked havoc uh, on me for a long time. It became a part of my identity that I had to strip away to be my real self. Mm. Right. And who is the real Josh Peck? Is it darker than what we're seeing? I suspect it's darker. (laughs) Yeah, probably. I don't know. I, I don't. I can't, I'll tell you this, this is fully honest. Like I'll talk, I'll reference things that go on in my mind or I'll reference things to like trusted friends or people in recovery about how I, you know, was when I was using and drinking and they'll be like, we just see this like totally happy, agreeable guy. And I'm like, really? Like, I'm not even trying to project that. And if only (laughs) you knew what was going on in here. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm, it's not painful. Like I, I like being amenable. I like being this way. Like, it's it's become slightly natural, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, in opera, they say that like it, an early criticism you get when you're you know working on your craft is to not lean when you're singing. You know, not sort of mm. lean forward with your upper body and like go to the audience. You're supposed to let them come to you, like pull them to you. Mm-hmm. And it's it feels very unnatural, especially on a stage, because you kind of want to give to the audience, look how emotional I am, look how in character yeah. I am. Mm-hmm. But it has an opposite effect. So there you go. It's very interesting. Okay, so next question. A recurring theme, or another recurring theme in your book, is not only your ego, but your acute awareness of your ego. I thought this was really interesting, is how you you were so aware of this like internal battle with knowing that you were making decisions and going after things, pursuing things based on ego, and you almost couldn't stop yourself. And you ultimately said you found happiness in not caring. Mm. And I think it's a tall order to advise someone to care less, even though I totally agree with you. And as a neurotic, introspective person like yourself, and I say it with love, because high praise, high praise. Yeah, we're both the exact same way. And a lot of the Shandies, our listeners, are also, I would say, overthinking, analytical, probably lean neurotic. At least 40 to 60 percent very neurotic. (laughs) Yes. So what advice would you give to other people who are like-minded in that regard on caring less. You're so right. I mean, and I, I say this in the book that forever people would tell me that, like, as soon as you stop caring is when you're <laughs> going to get the big role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, or it's the, the bullshit Instagram slogans that we hear every day. Like, it's just, you got to hustle. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to do that. Um, and so the reality is, is I would say, you know, I, I got a good life as a result of good living. You know, I, my, my life, there's this great quote, which is your character is your fate. And I believe that like my life, um, became that of a good man by doing the right thing in a small way over and over again. Mm. And so, Mm -hmm. and I just face life on life's terms and and I could never have have expected what was coming for me at 14. I didn't know I would have to lose all this weight and then get sober and then deal with this identity of being an actor and how it felt to not work for many years and deal with this idea that maybe my childhood was this anomaly and yeah. that I didn't have to be defined by this thing that I thought was me. I mean, I started my career at 10, so I didn't know where Josh the actor and Josh the human being you know, where one started and the other began or one stopped and the other began. So my, my journey is specific to me, but everyone has their version of it. And I guess the only difference is I never, 
I never lied down. And every time that I did face that, I was able to let go a little more. Do you think there's an element of just simply maturing into caring less? I'm just curious. I don't know. Don't you guys know like plenty of people in their 40s who suck? Yes. <laughs> right? Like I know almost no one in their 40s who doesn't suck. Or in their 50s or in their 30s. Yeah. <laughs> There was a great line in your book where you talked about how a lot shifted for you when you saw happiness as this, like, something that came and went. It wasn't permanent, pretty much. Yes. Like, it didn't have to be permanent instead of it being this destination. And that really resonated with me because I think it's easy yeah. to be like, well, I'll be happy when and then I'm good. I'll be happy. Good to exactly. go. Pot of gold at the end of the yep, rainbow. That's it. We're done. Mm -hmm. Just gravy after that. And happiness to me is like very transient and it's. You know, uh, uh, this buddy of mine has this great quote about like the universe demands balance. Too much sun brings about a desert. Mm -hmm. And mm. it's like, like and so now I'm at this place where like uh, as sure as the good is coming, the bad is coming too. And it'll just be in this weird messed up dance of back and forth for the rest of my life. But mm -hmm. I know that it, it's. I can survive it all. Like I've walked through it. Whereas mm -hmm. most of my life I spent terrified of the prospect of discomfort. Oh God, I'm not going to work for X and then I'm going to fall apart or she won't love me. And then I'm going to fall apart. Like, what is it? Like when, when my happiness wasn't contingent on outside um, factors was when it actually started to feel okay inside. Mm. Do you have a Rolodex of quotes in your brain at all times? Yeah, got, <laughs> I, I want to do that. Well, I don't have any quotes. I, yeah, you're not great with quotes, no, actually. No, I need more quotes. Well, and in the book, you do it all the time. But I'm realizing talking to you that you just do this in person. <laughs> um, I know. It's too, It's because I'm in 12 steps. You hear a lot of slogans. Like <laughs> We're great with slogans. But I guess they've been, been burned into my psyche. There you go. You have a quote for every answer. It's great. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> So many individuals with parasocial relationships say they perceive the personas as helping to significantly shape their own identity. Do you find this terrifying or flattering or both to consider that you could be shaping the identity of millions of people? <laughs> oh, boy, I can't even... <laughs> That's a good reaction. Thank you. That was a good reaction. If he acted nonplussed at that, yeah, I like, would have oh, been hurt. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I like, I can't even think about like, this sounds like this weird roundabout humble brag, but please forgive me the way I'm going to say this. It's like the few times, and this will happen maybe once or twice a year. And I really give it over to just people like have different ways of dealing with discomfort or surprise where I'll see someone and they'll well up maybe mm. like, mm -hmm. and it might just be that I remind them of their childhood and it brings them. I, my son, I'm going to, I'll choke up talking about it right now. My son loves Sesame street forever guys. If when I see Sesame street, it's a wrap because every memory of him loving it and getting a kick out of it and seeing it through these like pure, beautiful children's eyes, I go like, it has the most, you know, it, it, I have a soft spot for it. So mm -hmm in those moments that it'll happen with people if they well up when, when we meet, I always want to be like, no, 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 don't, please don't like, don't give me that power. Like, right. and I have to remember, right. but I'm self-centered because it's not about me. It's about, mm -hmm. you know, the wonderful feelings that they had watching that show. But yeah, I, I always want to be like, no, 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 not me. I don't deserve this. Like, you know, mm -hmm. go meet someone who's actually impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say there's an element of nostalgia then, like with, with the way you well up with Sesame Street, you watch your son watching Sesame Street? I, I think nostalgia is just such an incredible, an incredibly powerful emotion. Mm -hmm. Nothing gets me like nostalgia. Yeah. I've got to say. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. There's something. And yeah, when you see it through, like, especially because, you know, Sesame Street is just done such good for so long. So <laughs> it's, it's successful. Now that's like. That's the goal for me is to get on Sesame Street. So shout out if, if you know, the producers are a fan. I think you missed your calling. I, that was probably 20 years ago. I have a feeling if you want to get on Sesame Street, you can get on Sesame Street. I, I, I Dude, also feel have, that way. They have some heavy hitters. Don't sleep on it. And recently, <laughs> uh, Childish Gambino, Donald Glover was on. Wow. And, uh, yeah, no, okay. Joseph Gordon-Levitt did an app there, you know. 
They're, wow. they're I mean, stacked. when I when I was a kid, I was I was an electric company kid. So I'm cool. Okay, sure. Yeah, I wasn't like the loser who watched Sesame Street. But <laughs> but Morgan Freeman got his start on Electric Company. He was the guy who did the the, the words, the 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 word the sounds of words. I don't do even you, know what Electric Company is. That yeah, that's good. That means you're youthful. <laughs> yeah, but he's of my generation, so he I, might not yeah, do you, you know what Electric polite. Company. You Are have to polite? know what Electric Company is. He knows what Electric oh, yeah. He may have not watched Electric Company, but Morgan Freeman did this thing where they pronounced words and he would like be like like store and the, and the words like store would come out of his mouth. And if it was sure. like sev- several, yeah, I mean, I'm doing a terrible Morgan Freeman, but it would, if it was more than one syllable, it would just, it would show the breakup of the syllables. Like f- the words would be flowing out of his mouth. Like it was, it was basically the first ASMR. I was about to say that yeah, sounds like was, early Imagine ASMR. Morgan Freeman and ASMR like joint venture. Think of how amazing that is. So as a child, I would just watch Morgan Freeman be like, Elevator. <laughs> like I was like, ah. It sounds very oh. soothing. It was amazing. Anyway, you can right. you can YouTube and it. Now this was probably I don't know if this is synonymous, but as a a professional opera singer, are you great at ASMR or are they not? Oh, she's do amazing. They not have a synergy. She's great at ASMR. I, I at doing it or receiving. You're good it? at doing ASMR. I think I think I could. I think if I wanted to pick up an, another hat, I could do ASMR. Oh. I'm going to be honest. She would kill it. Well, because diction, you know, yeah. when you're when you're a performer, you're aware of uh, consonants. Mm-hmm. Want to yeah, do a little? Just, no. Want to do, do the rest of, rest of the podcast in ASMR? Let's <laughs> all whisper for the rest of this. I have a quick question that's not on my list, but when you just talked now about watching Sesame Street through your son's eyes, and this might get cut from this conversation if I'm totally honest. <laughs> so we've been married for seven years and we're those people who cannot decide whether or not to have kids. Hmm. I'm curious because oftentimes when I ask people, I feel like the answer is like, well, I've always known I want to be a parent and it changed my life. It just feels kind of like I've, I know what answer is coming. I feel like based on reading your book, I want to know what, what you would say to that question is what, how has it affected your life and what impact and yeah. did you always know you wanted to yeah, have a child or more? <laughs> well, first of all, don't you dare cut this out of the podcast because I'm <laughs> dying to hear your thoughts on what I say. And I, so I'm <laughs> sure your listeners are dying to hear it too. Because um, <laughs> like we right. said, this is this is honesty. This is True. vulnerable. True. Um, I Look, I can only speak to my experience. I give one piece of unsolicited advice to new parents because I don't like this thing that seems to be reoccurring with new parents is that people like to scare them when they're pregnant. And it's like fun. (laughs) It's fun, loving jabbing. They're like, Oh, sleep now. Never going to sleep again. You know, (laughs) get ready for your life to change forever. (laughs) And what I tell all new parents is it's just going to be great. That's all you need to know. It's going to be great. And you can't totally prepare. You can do up their room and you can buy the right books, but inevitably you're just going to see the kind of kid you have and you'll adjust. But every, you know, inconvenience that can come from having a kiddo, like, you know, you're, you're a little tired. Like it's so overshadowed by these moments of watching them watch Sesame Street or discovering something for the first time. And for someone like me, I need something to get me out of myself. And Mm. I can find things that aren't my kid, but my kid is this beautiful device that needs my focus all the time and helps. Like the only times where I'm like slightly, I wouldn't even call it resentful, but like where being a parent is a drag is when I'm so in my own head and obsessed with self Mm. that I want to say, Max, leave me alone. Like I want to, you know, I want to think about the abyss. (laughs) (laughs) I'm busy. Exactly exactly what you're talking about. Stop distracting me. I'm in a great dark place. The other, uh, I'll be honest, the other day, and my son is three, like my mom and I just got, we we were over at my mom's and, and, you know, single mom, only child, like we're Jewish, we're fiery. Like we got into a little bit of a disagreement about something And so we start to like, you could just feel the energy shift in the room where she's like, no, you don't get it. I'm like, you don't get it, mom. And we're going back and forth. And I'm like, I'm 35. I'm a grown up. No. (laughs) (laughs) And my son, all of a sudden, like 
was got in the and like uh, this was not a fight by any means it's just like he could tell we were like having a bit of a debate and he immediately got in my face was like dad i need you like he could just feel the shit the energy shift and he's like oh i don't like this wow Mm. so he tried to to like intervene in his own way of like let me just take your distraction here so yeah i'm not exactly sure how that that connects but (laughs) yeah they're a great tool. They're a great tool to like help you grow as a human at the very least. Okay. Well, this is what I will say. If we do decide to have kids and it's not hey, great, I'm coming for you, Josh Peck. <laughs> Dude, I, I'll tell you this. Like, I have a buddy, shout out Max Shapiro, my friend. And he's like in his late 30s, real estate agent, killing it, drives a Porsche, a red Porsche. And <laughs> 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 he's the man. He, he's as good as it gets. And he lo- he's brilliant when it comes to food and dining. He's an incredible chef. And he loves going out most nights of the week and bringing his own vintage wine and going to like really cool new restaurants in LA. And, and he writes about it. He has a great life and he doesn't really desire kids. And I go, you know what? I get it. Like, mm-hmm. that's really important to you. Like those things weren't important to me anymore. I'd taken so much yoga. I'd been to so many cool restaurants. I was like, I'm down to be inconvenienced by this yep. kid. Mm-hmm. And now I've seen almost every Dave and Buster's in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> it's always great. Is there a best one? Is there a best Dave and Buster's? The one near LAX is outstanding. And what? Good to know. Usually stuff near an airport's not the best, but it, it's pretty high end. And LAX is no normal airport. Yeah, that's true. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that answer. Yeah, Just curious. me too. I, when, I, when I meet someone who I feel is like-minded, mm-hmm. and I feel like you're like-minded after having read your book, I, would, I just had to pick your brain on that. Okay, I've got two more for you, Josh. Okay. Do you ever feel a sort of, this is my question, by the way, I'm just, <laughs> this is so me, so I just want to see if he feels the same way. Do you ever feel a sort of reverse, parasocial isn't the right word, but parasocial relationship with your followers and fans? So beyond the obvious mutually beneficial ecosystem of being an influencer, do you ever feel like emotionally attached to them or reliant on them or mm-hmm. angry at them? Do you ever feel betrayed by them, disappointed, any of those emotions? Mm-hmm. By, by the, the people who follow me? Yeah, mm-hmm. like by the response. Are you, do you ever like, like I'm sure you feel a kinship with them because they feel such a kinship with you. I think that's only natural. I'm curious if you've ever done something or ever felt like, how could you, like just felt angry at them or just, mm-hmm. or even super attached or even like weirdly attached to them. I'm just curious. I never really talked about this, but like, yeah, I mean, I got married and had a small to medium sized wedding and I didn't invite Drake of Drake and Josh (laughs) because um, I, I don't know if, you know, I, I, don't know if everyone invites people that they worked with when they were teenagers Mm. to their wedding a decade (laughs) later. I mean, to say it very honestly, like, like, you know, and it wasn't a slight, it just was a reality that there was a small guest list and, and we hadn't quite stayed close, but I was more than willing to die with that, with Drake and I being the only ones who knew that, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was, I was so pleased uh, and I, I continue to be pleased about what the show means to people. And I don't have to ruin that, you know, I'm not trying to have some Sarah Jessica Parker, Kim Cattrall beef out there, you know, Um, love them both. But like, you know, like I just was like, I know that you and I haven't really stayed close, but the world doesn't let them continue to be like just wonderfully in love with the idea that we're still sharing a bedroom. And um, again, like we said, people marry themselves to the, to the way they first fall in love with you. So inevitably I didn't invite them he lashed out in a pretty upsetting way. And it became like this, you know, he did it very publicly and it became this wave. And I think mostly I was just incredibly uh, protective of my wife who A, was not a public person and B, it was her wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, oh my God. And all I wanted to do was like run up to everyone who was writing me mean comments on social media. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like Mm -hmm. you think you get it, but you don't. So, Mm So I think in the moment, uh, I certainly had some feelings of like, I just want to make this right. And why are you guys like, you know, not seeing this in a full way? But 
I'm glad I never said anything because there was nothing to say except to say, you know, things will fall the way they will and you'll either understand eventually or you right, won't. You'll right. probably understand when you're getting married and you have to, you know, Cut down a, de- a guest list. Yeah. It's right. actually super stressful. I cried when doing our guest list. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. A lot of crying. Yeah. It was traumatizing. But it is, it's true. It's like the most upsetting thing of, about have, you know, having all these fans is when they misunderstand you. And yes. you, you experience this a That's lot. That's what I struggle with the most. And again, microcosm, not comparing. Yeah, yeah, no, but it's all the no, same absolutely. kind of thing. It's but just, that's the thing. It's like, you're like, no, that's not true. But you all think that. Now what do I do? Yeah. How do I fix this? You know what? I just don't care. I, that's I really, the way to do it. I relate to your answer. I, I feel like such an attachment to people who feel an attachment to me because it makes me feel seen. And I'm an Enneagram four, which means I really care about that. <laughs> Same. But, <laughs> but I really struggle when those same people who have made me feel so seen and understood misunderstand me. Yeah. And I just like, I'll cry like in mm-hmm. oh, here at home alone. Like I can't handle it. And Andy sometimes is like, maybe you're a little too attached to what, <laughs> you know, these people who That's you've never met bad. think of you. <laughs> and it's also like, again, you know how in, I, I, I don't know if you guys are this way, but in most situations, I'm like, yeah, most people are good. There's a small percentage of people who yeah. are rotten. And then mm-hmm. there's a small percentage of people like I probably just would never want to interact with. Like, mm-hmm. that's the Internet. Like, the, yeah. all all the people who get it are almost 100 percent not right. Like, I when that's I was so going true. through it, my my buddy said to me, he's like, hey have you ever written anything on Twitter that wasn't like in service to your social media career? Like where you were like that episode of breaking bad sucked. Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever even written that? And I'm like, no, he's like, yeah. Cause the people that do that are like a specific type. <laughs> like, right, and they most can good it. people. Yeah. yeah. Most good people. They're just too busy being in real life to be writing their innermost thoughts uh, and <laughs> giving it out to the world. Mm-hmm. It is so true because I have to admit, have I ever commented or, or done that? Like commented on a blog post or no. tweet, like, nope. Never have. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's that's good. There, that was a good, an elegant way of of sort of holding up a mirror there, Josh. Well done. Well done. <laughs> and I will Anytime. say, I will say that if you are getting no hate at all, that means you're not successful. It's, ah, impo- so it's mathematically impossible, I think. Yeah. So, so true. Agreed. So be flattered. Okay. <laughs> okay, Josh. What do you think the parasocial relationship millions have with you has ultimately taught you about human nature? Wow, human nature. Um, I I would say that like people I've never understood fandom because I I'm not like like when people are obsessed with Star Wars or Harry Potter or Marvel movies, like I've always sort of I've always sort of uh, just made light of it because I, I, I'm not that way. Mm-hmm. But I see the value in what someone like me and what you guys do. Like we're creators. We create, right? Like someone's going to listen to this when they're on a walk in their car, at the gym, what have you. And you're going to give them escapism for the next hour. Like mm-hmm. and end with a message and information. So it's not just pure like, you know, soap opera, but <laughs> it's, it's, we're doing the same thing here because people live hard lives and Mm -hmm. we can offer them a reprieve, hopefully if we're doing our jobs. And so that's virtuous, right? Cause like I fall, I'm victim to everything that every other actor is like, I want to make good money doing something cool. And I'm probably vain and self-centered as it gets (laughs) like (laughs) I, I fight it and I've learned tools to deal with it. But at my, you know, core, I'm probably like as self obsessed as any actor can be. So I guess it's like a long-winded way of saying, like, I think it's important to find virtue in what we're doing. And I think people need us. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that's how to make sense of what we're doing and that we're not just like looking for accolades or looking to have a a bunch Mm -hmm. of followers on social media. Like we're providing a service to people and it's age old. It's like, I Mm -hmm. mean, People were, were, you know, the good storytellers got like the better cut of beat 2000 years ago. Like the jest, a good king had a good jester because no one was, everyone was too afraid to tell the king what was really going on. And the jester Mm -hmm. would tell the king like, 
you're kind of full of shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. So That's I think true. what we do is important. I think people, yeah, I think people need us. Mm. Okay. You went in a different direction with that answer that I expected. And I loved your answer. I'm also curious, based on just feedback you've gotten over the years, being in the public eye, all these millions of people looking up to you, telling you what they think, being that drunk uncle at Thanksgiving, the accumulation of all those years since 10 being on TV, of being in the public eye, what do you feel like you understand about human nature of the masses that mm. the average person might not? Oh, man, it's... It's ten. It's tenuous. It's um, I'm very careful. Like to, the totally honest answer is is like, if if you are having to explain what you meant, it's you're in trouble. And <laughs> so tr- so true. T- tenuous. Good word. Good yeah. word. The the, ma- the masses are fickle. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I always like to the, the like the Simpsons captures it so well when like the whole town just immediately runs towards something like, you know, you know, you probably are familiar with the monorail episode of the Simpsons where they, the, the monorail guy comes and he builds a monorail. He's like, yes, monorail. Like every time there's some fancy new thing, everyone rushes to it. Yeah. And then they're just immediately as quickly run away from it. You know, so you have right. to get comfortable with that dynamic that the masses will come to you and leave you and come to you and leave you within a span of a few weeks. And, and that's life. Oh, yeah. And in this crate, in the climate that we're in now, I feel like because we're all fallible and capable of like putting our foot in our mouth and saying the wrong thing, that's when your life becomes your defense, right? Because mm-hmm. like they will look at your life as the case study so that if you have a misstep and say something, they'll be like, well, is there evidence in the past to support that he really thinks X? Mm. And Mm -hmm. like, so that's why, like, while I'm sure if and when it happens to me, I'll (laughs) be like, you know, the neuroses will be, you know, at a 10 and I'll be calling my shrink and my wife on a, (laughs) on a, on a three-way call. I also like somehow I'm able to rest easy slightly knowing like, well, as far as I know, if you look at, you know, my my track record, I, I try to be a good dude. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that that's transparent. Mm-hmm. The body of work. Yeah, I will. I will say after this podcast, I, I'm going to say that you're a good dude. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. Thanks. I guess at the we'll very see. least. <laughs> God, Josh, you were such a pleasure to chat with, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's also something else. I have to thank you because I... In the summer of 2008, I was, it was a bad year. Like I was going through a messy breakup. I had had a career, my career sucked. It was a bad situation. My father had just passed away. And I went by myself to Lincoln Plaza Cinemas, which I'm sure you know. Sure. Rest in peace. Um, And I went to go see The Wackness. And it was, you know... It's one of those very rare and especially now iconic New York City coming of age movies. And I felt so untethered at the time. Like I was just like, oh, I don't know what to focus on, which misery. And I was sitting in that theater watching the movie. And by the end, I just felt so grounded and connected. And I felt like things are going to be okay. And that's I'm not just this is not a story I'm just giving you for (laughs) kicks. This is true. Oh, and to this day, it's, I think it's a masterpiece. It was a real uplifting experience for me. And I thank you. It was a great oh, film. It means so much, dude. And especially being like, we're, we're probably close in age. And a kid from the Upper West Side, the director, Jonathan Levine, was a kid mm-hmm. from the Upper East Side, who was like 10 years older than me. So re- really was 17 in 94, which was like the renaissance of hip hop. And mm-hmm. So that means so much because that's why I wanted to do it. Like I was like, oh, I know this guy. Like I know, mm-hmm. it, I know how to do this. I remember it was one of those rare things where I was going against like some heavy hitter actors, which in nine mm-hmm. times out of ten, I'm just like, I'm, I'm like Jonah Hill would be so much better for this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but those were it was that rare moment where I was like, I know how to do this because um, mm-hmm. I sort of lived it, and and I'm sure you saw so many parallels growing up mm-hmm. in New York. And so it yeah. means a lot. Uh, I, I love when people love that movie. I, I did love it. You were great. And, and it, he's very discerning. 
I can't. I, I, am, I am a major movie snob. Yeah. I might say it's, that that's one of the last good movies I've seen. <laughs> Especially when it comes to New York movies. Yeah. I'm very particular about my oh, New yeah. York movies. That if was it's a great not one. like a good New York movie, he's like, ah. Yeah. He turns <laughs> no, over I the table. <laughs> oh, I'm the same. Josh, you were such a pleasure to chat with. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for spending Thank you this guys. You, this your time beauties. With us. I'm so impressed by you two and your relationship and, and your pod abilities and I feel so lucky pod abilities pod abilities so many pod abilities thank you thank you so much a lot of uh admiration over here uh in from your hometown which you don't seem to have any plan on moving back to but that's okay that's all right we forgive you he's one of those LA no LA convert okay Josh thank you so much and and we'll let you go and we hope everyone reads your book yeah it was so beautiful read it take care thank you guys thank you bye Bye-bye. That was more uplifting than I expected it to be, and it was sort of a reminder to me to take it all a little more in stride. Mm -hmm. Good. I'm glad that was your takeaway. Like, if someone of his level of fame and notoriety can say that, like, the thing it's taught him about human nature is just that it's, you know, people are kind of fickle. Mm Mm-hmm. That's not that bad. It could be way worse than that. No, he's come out pretty unscathed. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes I, like I said, like I feel such an attachment to the people who feel attached to me that when they misunderstand me, I'm just, I'm disproportionately upset about it. And you always tell me this, mm-hmm. but he really, he had a surprisingly positive take on yeah. everything, even at a time, you know, he lost 120 pounds. And people were upset about it. Mm-hmm. They were upset. They upset. Were, they were yeah. angry at him for letting himself not die of obesity. Isn't that incredible? It's it, amazing. Like it's an inconvenience yeah. to them. Like what? You're 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 not funny anymore. Yeah, I yeah. like the fat well, guy. People said that. In the, he said in the book, people were like, "Oh, you were funnier when you were fat." Amazing. And what I like about his answer to that was. That wasn't the majority. Yeah. And that's something that I have to remind myself of. No, and you most, always remind me of that. Most people are good. Most people are good. I believe Truly that. Truly 99.5. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, 98. It's, uh, yeah, 95. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you 95, <laughs> but uh, with a heavy heart. I, I will say that there were, not only are most people great, but there are always going to be a vocal, loud minority that is terrible. Always. Yeah. It does it it doesn't matter what country you're in, what time of the, the, the life of human existence it is, there are always gonna be a vocal minority. Yeah. And nowadays it's easier than ever to be extremely vocal and terrible. Yeah. You have all the avenues. Everyone's got a megaphone. Mm-hmm. So um I uh, I always tell you people are mostly good. He touched on something at the end there that that is how I always tend to feel It's like, you know, he says, if and when the time comes where I offend people or I have to apologize or something, he's like, hopefully they will take stock of everything else I've done and right. assess the that I'm resume. not a bad guy. Yeah, exactly. I just I think that we live in a time where that happens less and less. Mm-hmm. The assessing of the whole body. Of well, work. there's a trigger. It's like it's like, what did you do just now? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking about yeah. only. But time passed. Time heals all wounds. It really does. Like even the times where we have an episode where we say one thing in an hour and 15 minutes that offends people. And I and I get so upset because I'll have spent so many hours on that episode. Yeah. And I'm like, like, I don't want to offend people. But at the same time, is that the only thing you're going to focus on? And I get I take it so personally. Right, But the next week, they've all forgotten about it. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Because we're not doing anything terrible enough that people like a year from now are going to be like, oh, remember what Dear Shandy yeah. said? Yeah. Oh, I mean, we haven't yeah. been canceled. Not yet. yet. Not yet. <laughs> no, but it, it's true. And with the podcast, I always compare it to baseball. Okay. And this is an old analogy, but in baseball, you play 162 games a year. Ooh, that's 162 that's games. So you can wait, have. Wait a minute. Are you serious? 162 games. So like every other day, basically, or every third day? Almost almost every day. You basically have a normal work week, like five days a week of playing baseball. Like like professional. From like like April through October. And if you make the playoffs and the World Series and even into November. So it's it's crazy. Did not know that. So in baseball, it's like you could lose 500 to nothing. 
You could make 20 errors. You could literally play like a, a, a fifth grader in Little League. Okay. And the next day, you can be a hero. Like yeah. you, you literally, the next day, you can make it right back. Yeah. So it's like this. It's like, you, 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 okay, so you make one mistake. You make it right back the next time. It's only how your last album was. Yeah. Or your last baseball game. Yeah. I have to get better about that. No. Maybe I'll bring that up with my therapist next week. And before we wrap, there was one more quote I wanted to include because I just thought he described humor. And do you love it when people talk about humor? I do enjoy analyzing humor. But he described humor or the power of humor better than I think I've ever read it described or heard mm-hmm. it described. He said, imagine shifting the energy of an entire room when you were supposed to be at the kids table, becoming the boy king in a matter of seconds. People can be too much of a lot of things, too smart, too nosy, too gullible, but you're never too funny. It's as close to a magic trick as you can get because when it's good, really good, people are left wondering how you did it. And if you can do it again, <laughs> there's a sense of wonderment. Comedy has made people rich, given stays of execution, and most importantly, made the ugly attractive for millennia. (laughs) It's so true. But I feel that with you. Like when I read that, I saw you. Because I I do feel that when we hang out with people, there's this sense of wonderment at how funny you are. And I think even with the podcast, people are so bewildered by... Like they love it, but they're also like, is, is she should get into comedy. Like he's uncommonly <laughs> funny. And it's, I almost wonder if every time they tune back in, it's to see if you can do the magic trick again. I mean, sometimes I feel like the, like I feel the same way. <laughs> can I do that again? I don't even know what I'm doing. I mean, that's just me. Yeah. I don't know if I, I mean, I guess that's how I am. Yeah. There's a key difference between the two of you in that he thrives And maybe, you know, it helps when you've been doing it since you were 10, but with a camera on him. Meanwhile, with you, it's like, I've got to point the camera, like point the little screen away so you don't see it. Even when we're hanging out and I whip out an iPhone, you're like, you're like, (laughs) God, I'm so terrible at that. Yeah. It's cute though. Thank you, wife. (laughs) I think that's a wrap, Andy. Do you have anything else you want to say about parasocial relationships? What a hilarious term. No, it's. It's it's a fascinating topic and we learn more about it every day. And I think he was a great guest to expound upon this. Yeah. And I also just uh, I just really respect him. I think he's come through a lot. He's had a crazy story. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a New Yorker. So mm-hmm. I feel a little bit of a kinship. Yeah, there. now he lives in L.A., but it's uh, OK. It's all right. We <laughs> forgive him. All right. If you enjoyed what you heard today, you know what we will ask of you. And that is to like subscribe, hit the notification bell, follow us on Instagram. Tell your friends, leave us Apple and Spotify podcast ratings and reviews, and generally do all the things you would do to support a podcast you enjoy. And Josh Peck's book, Happy People Are Annoying, just came out March 15th, so be sure to grab a copy. Mm -hmm. I am not exaggerating when I say it really moved me and made me laugh. Which all is a rare combination. All of the things. And I st- and I my guarantee stands. If you don't like it, <laughs> come to me. Okay, thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Dear Shandy. Bye. Dear Shandy.